Hey. And a three, and a two, and a one, and a clap. Oh, that's two claps. The two claps felt like they were separated by a second. Yeah, no, that, gonna... the, I always hear it that way on my end. Oh, okay. That's good. that's the lag that we're compensating for. I see, I see, I see. That's great. Hey, I feel good about that clap. Hey, welcome to episode number 23 of Fits and Starts. Hey, John. Uh, so, Daniel, we have a, a super special guest today. You want to tell us about our guest? Uh, yeah, our cur- our guest uh, this episode is Nancy French. Nancy French is a friend and former client, um, and she is uh, she's a writer. She does a lot of sort of article writing and opinion writing. She also does uh, some ghost writing of books and autobiographies and stuff like that uh, for a lot of people on the political right. You're you're bearing the lead a little bit, you know. Yeah, I'd say most people have zero New York Times bestsellers. Uh, a few people have have one. She's got four of them. Four of them, yeah. Uh, four New York Times bestsellers. Very. Uh, she's a she's a big deal. Not a small deal. Not a small deal. Um, but yeah, Nancy was gracious enough to talk to us. Uh, that she and her husband recently have had sort of a falling out with uh, a lot of the political right, and uh, she talks a lot about that and uh, sort of what it was like for them to sort of bear the brunt of uh, going against Donald Trump in the election and a lot of the travesty that that caused uh, in their personal and professional lives. It's a really interesting story. Um, really crazy, crazy stuff. Crazy stuff. And just a heads up along those lines, she gets into some of the specific ways in which the the alt-right attacked uh, her and the rest of her family and gets uh, a little graphic in there. It gets pretty hairy. So, uh Yep. Uh, but you know, it was important to leave it in there. It was really, you know, good, uh, good insight. And so we want to cut it. The other thing, of course, we want to mention is we have a Patreon page, which you can see is the top link in your show notes, uh, for patrons. Uh, we have stickers and we have uh, bonus content. We have early access. You get the episode on Monday instead of Wednesday. Uh, Daniel, tell us about our, uh, special, uh, bonus topic this week on the Patreon page. Uh, so I just got the iPhone 10. Uh, I really like it. So far, I've got a few grips and gripes, uh, but primarily I enjoyed a lot. So we're just going to do a quick review of the iPhone 10. Bada bing, bada boom. Bada bing, bada boom. Uh, we also want to shout out to listener Robbie. We got a new duck, a new five buck duck. Hello. Of which we're very proud. Thank you, listener Robbie. Thanks, Robbie. Um, yeah, it's awesome. Uh, and then we want to do our quick shout out to a friend's project of the episode. Uh, Jeff Morsky friend of yours and mine, uh, and his friend, Dave Cohen, do a podcast together, and it is called Colonel Panic. You can check it out at colonelpanicpodcast.com. Uh, it is uh, basically two systems administrators uh, talking about that side of the tech industry and what it takes to get in. Uh, it's mainly targeted at people who are interested in either getting into the tech industry or switching jobs within the tech industry. So they talk about, are certifications valuable? Uh, what happens in a technical interview? Uh, what do you need to know if you went to college, if you didn't go to college, to get into these types of jobs? So really, really interesting content. I learn something every week. You will too. that uh the netflix documentary about the romney campaign it looked like it was it was such a fascinating look uh kind of back at just like 
kind of the nuts and bolts of a campaign. Did you see that? I thought that was really well done. Uh, yes, we were sort of a part of that uh, that film. Um, we know Greg Whiteley, yeah. the producer, very, very well. We were on the bus together. So Greg was shooting his movie while I was writing the book. Right. And w- when the campaign ended, Greg and I had this conversation like, oh, my gosh, we've done all of this work for nothing. Um, his movie was more independent than my book was. My book was more yeah. of a collaboration with the campaign. So when the campaign ended, it didn't make sense to pursue it. But Greg's movie um, was really, I haven't seen the final production of it, but um, we were, you know, I was there and I, he came, even came to Columbia, Tennessee to interview us. The faith element is what I dealt with during the 2008. Yeah. Uh, in 2012 campaign, but um, the movie decided not to focus as much on the faith element. Yeah. So we, we, we were on the cutting room floor. That was an interesting one because it was, he was such a, uh, I mean, it's such a minority religion in America, but he was kind of such a v- vanilla candidate at the same time. It's just, it was such right. an interesting dynamic there. Yes. Well, my big regret on that whole thing was that I worked four years on a group that we had created called Evangelicals for Mitt. And we are, like, I'm a, a member of the Presbyterian Church of America, the PCA Church, which is the more conservative branch of the Presbyterian Church. So for years I spent trying to convince evangelicals that they could, in good conscience, support a Mormon candidate because we were co-belligerents in the culture war and we shared the same social values and I mean, I had a long list of arguments that aren't even interesting to uh, say today because all of the evangelicals that we spoke to at the time said that they had these deeply held religious beliefs that prohibited Mm. them from voting for a Mormon. And then literally five minutes later, they're hanging out with Donald Trump. They're being photographed in front of Playboy magazines that featured Trump and his lifestyle. And so I just realized that for eight years, I was just talking to people who were lying to me. Nancy, what, what, I, I don't even have a good question here. Can I just say what, ha- what happened? <laughs> <laughs> I, I am not sure. I'm still asking myself that because we believed, I believed that the Republican Party represented certain values. I grew up on Rush Limbaugh. I used to watch Rush Limbaugh on television. I would record it on a VCR and come home from high school and watch it. <laughs> So I believed what they said. I read things that James Dobson wrote. I believed. I believed. And then suddenly um, when we had this Mitt Romney character who was running for president. And do you remember how everyone used to mock him for being a Boy Scout? Mm, Like mm, Boy Boy Scouts are like wonderful. Like why would you make fun of Boy Scouts? Like. Are we not Republican people? Do we, why do we hate Boy Scouts? And so, but I realized that what they wanted wasn't somebody with whom they theologically align, but rather someone who had pugnacity. You know, that was like ba- basically the only they wanted someone who who fought. You know, and yeah. Governor Romney is is a gentleman, and he, you know, I believe still. I don't care how nasty politics gets. I'm trying to get out of politics. It just doesn't do anything for me other than raise my blood pressure right now. But um, Republicans just didn't have the virtue that they said they had. 
Um, and disillusionment is my main takeaway. <laughs> yeah. My, my feeling increasingly is just that I think that there are a lot of people like me and it sounds like, like you who in the wake of all of this stuff are sort of feeling this kind of sense of like political homelessness uh, where it doesn't really feel like regardless of what your convictions are, it doesn't really feel like there's a home for you in either party or, you know, in, in any of the kind of existing institutions. And you just this kind of like profound, like the emperor has no clothes feeling right now where it doesn't really feel like there's anyone who I want to throw my hat in with. And I'm, I'm kind of just frustrated by everything that's going on. And that's, that's a pretty weird place to be. Yes, I actually have a nine-year-old, and we went to the library, and I, I specifically sought out that book about the Emperor Has No Clothes, and I read it to her, and yeah. she she didn't know the punchline of that, and she loved that book, and um, as I was reading it, I just felt profoundly sad. In in the, the fable, the um, only person who has the guts to tell the king that he is uh, nude is a child, and... Right. Um, and I felt I feel sort of like that. I feel like uh, this naive person who keeps saying, "Wait a minute, this isn't right." Remember five minutes ago when we used to all agree on a certain set of values. Um, but yes, I feel like a bird without a nest, a person who has no home politically. I actually quit the Republican Party, um, and uh, and congratulations. I've been, yes, I've been a Republican my entire life, so I don't know. I don't have a place. And I don't feel like there is a place for me in the current setup. I've had an experience before. And, like, you know, I, I've, i like, gone through a bunch of, uh, you know, various transitions politically um, in my life. But I've, I've gone through the place of feeling really disillusioned and really apathetic. And, like, I didn't want to vote. I didn't want to have any political conversations, you know, like I would get really annoyed when people would bring things up, you know, like, or when people would want an opinion on an issue, particularly, I was like, who cares about the issue? Like the issue, that issue is not tied to any political philosophy. It's just theater. Right. And I I can't, like, I can't play the theater game with you right now, you know? And I feel like, I think I did that for like two or three years. And it's really only been in the last probably year that I'm sort of a little bit reawakening politically, but even so, like, out very much outside of like the sort of established uh, political options, you know. Right. I remember when we chatted in New York, you were not very politically uh, interested. And, yeah. Yeah, I remember that. I was tired. <laughs> I was tired. <laughs> And, yeah, and so I've always had this thought, and I, I'd love to get your thought on this as, like, a person of faith and a person of, uh, a former person of politics. Let's right. put it that way. Right. Um, like, I've often felt like when people are, uh, feel powerless, they go to God or government right. to, uh, to find a little bit of agency in their life, Right. And, like, I feel like we're all raised being taught that either the government and the political system that creates it exists to to take care of us on a level that we can't take care of ourselves, right? right? And, and to handle the things that we need large institutions to handle, right? And then, secondarily, those of us that are raised religious are often 
taught that like what the government can't handle like god handles right and i think it's got to be weird for you in this situation where like you know as a sort of religious and political person like you you're having the experience of watching like some of the morals of like your religious peers kind of look a little bit flimsy and also some of the like principles of your political peers start to like fall apart is that is that like a weird place like existentially beyond just like you know your career and like having having an opinion on things and you know having stuff to write about it feels like a much more existential thing than I would have thought it would oh right no I feel the same way I feel just complete angst um and it's and you're generous when you say that my former uh friends in the Republican Party have flimsy morals I mean they are so malleable as to be non-existent um a lot of them so I so but I I I don't necessarily agree with the sort of the binary uh, uh, way that you phrase that, like politics takes care of things and God takes care of everything else, um, it, you know, the way that that's presented. I believe that America was created to be a self-governing society, um, and the larger the government became, the more we relied on it for just our basic needs. I honestly think this has something to do with, I think there's a big gap between people who live in rural America like I do and people who live in more urban areas um, in that in like the rural South, for example, you're not relying on the government for basic necessities. Like, for example, our trash pickup is private. Our um, you know, like we, if you call the police, they're not going to, you know, like I had a, a gentleman show up at my house and I had to call the police and they, the police here are wonderful, but they're not going to be able to make it all the way out here in a timely way. So we called the neighbors who showed up with, um, you know, their own weapons and we took care of it individually. Um, you know, like if you have a fire, um, your the fire department is not going to be able to help you. There's a joke here that says, you know, the fire department in the rural South will save your foundation. Uh, but that's pretty much it. And so we, we don't rely on the government as much as, you know, like if you, I used to live in New York City and everything you did uh, was dependent on the government functioning well. And it's a miracle that it functions as well as it does in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. And so I believe that we should be self, more self-governing than we actually are. Um, but God is not plan B in terms of taking care of us. Um, but I believe that relying on politics at all to save us is just not going to work. And so God is not plan B, but rather he's sort of like the um, overarching thing. Like I think maybe what in my life, what I've learned is that um, God is sovereign and that he is actually in charge of everything. And we actually are powerless uh, that that I have no sense of agency. I've literally done everything I can. I the only thing I did not do was get a tattoo of Mitt Romney's face on my forehead. Um, like I did everything I could. And then when Trump was running, I did everything I could to prohibit him from winning. Um, and I am just such a small small uh, player. I have such a small voice. I don't have the pull or the voice that some people do, including my husband. Uh, I'm married to David French, who writes for National Review, and he's really writing amazing things right now. He's really uh, uh, talking a lot 
about uh, the Trump presidency and the ramifications for the culture, and he's very reasonable, and he has a large following of um, independents and liberals and conservatives who are who are reading him right now. But um, I believe that what we do personally and individually is important, and that our culture is being made not by the hopefully by the president of the United States, but by a collection of all of these individual acts of courage or virtue that we are doing personally in our own lives. I feel like that's what America is, not this, uh, you know, person that's sitting in the Oval Office tweeting every thought that he's ever had. Hey, Nancy, can you hear me? Hey, this is David. I was helping her. Hold on. Let me get switch over to her. So, Nancy, are you recording your end or do you want us to talk you through that or something? Okay, so I'm on my husband's gaming computer, and it is not a Mac. Yes. It's some big monstrosity. Oh, no. It's called, it has Alienware or something. I don't know. It's weird. Okay, should I call my husband in here? I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at this big, like, if it's not an Apple, it has, it has, it's a Dell, I'm embarrassed to say. It's huge. Okay, yep, it should be recording now. So, okay, um, when you say should be. Well, it's, <laughs> like, the counter's going. Uh-huh. There's, uh, yeah. Uh, the, the the little blinking green and yellow and red lights uh-huh. demonstrating volume okay. are all going. Okay. <laughs> so, right. I don't know what to tell you. It's telling me it's recording. Okay. Thank you, David. <laughs> we got two Frenches for the price of one. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> so, you do stuff in public ish right so it's like there's there's an extent to which like a lot of your work isn't public and like doesn't have your name attached to it and then there's the other stuff that does have your name attached to it and then your name is also attached to david's name which has you know a lot of other stuff going on what's the difference between doing work because all of your work basically is public it's just not all of it is yours right in public right so what's the difference in that work like what is it like to do work in public that you know people are going to hate And what's the difference when you do that as you versus when you do that as someone else? My husband and I came out as Never Trump really early. Um, So we we sort of had this uh, dissonance. I had dissonance in my occupational life where I, I started... Wondering, you know, like I did, I was, I was never Trump, but at one point I ended up on a, a plane that Trump had rented for one of my clients, and I'm standing there thinking, I'm not going to get a selfie with Donald Trump. Um, I, I don't, I don't know how I got here, but it just, it's strange, you know. So, but at one point I was getting hate mail from never Trumpers and pro Trumpers, just depending on the moment and the piece. Um, and that is super strange. And so I've sort of, that's one of the reasons why I'm trying to get out of politics. But um, I, I believe that I got sort of um, hardened against the criticism back when I worked for the Palins. Um, rarely has there been a person that's been more um, politically polarizing than Sarah Palin. And she's been uh, in many ways un- unfairly criticized for years. Um, and so I, when I did work for the Palins, I just got so many people who would, who hated me so much. Um, and I thought that I was in the big leagues, big leagues of hate, uh, social media hate and email hate and otherwise. But then when the Trump phenomenon happened and we came out against Trump, that's when the real terrible, um, hate came our way. Um, we have a black child. Um, and 
members of the alt-right um, did not like that, and uh, so they decided, they were going to criticize us anyway, but they decided to use her to um, yes. criticize us, and so they took pictures from our Facebook and pictures of my sweet baby, and they would Photoshop her into Auschwitz uh, gas oh, chambers gosh. with Donald Trump uh, pulling the, the gas lever, and um, mm. they Photoshopped me doing horrible things. It, you know, it was just very, very frustrating and humiliating, you know, to be discussed in public like that. But um, I just, uh, I love my family, and I believe that it's important to have the virtue that we always said we had. And so, you know, the hate speech from, you know, the alt-right is not going to dissuade me, you know. And even saying that, I promise you, they, they will come out against me on Twitter and, and other forms. I got email. I got a, a I, what I perceive to be a death threat um, via email after we took a very public anti-Trump stance from a gentleman who was a former military um, uh, member, a soldier in the Army, who said that he knows how to use a weapon and that if I don't stop talking, that he's going to show me how to use it, that he, that he knows how to use it on me. And so I, I took Jeez. that pretty personally. I, Jeez. I, yeah, that is just awful to hear. I'm so sorry <laughs> to hear that. Um, I don't know. It feels like one of the major things that people are going to look back on in this era uh, in history books is just the extent to which online harassment has just gotten completely out of control. It's We're in such a strange place right now where everyone has uh, all the kind of tools of the internet at their at their disposal and social media platforms especially don't really seem terribly interested in moderating uh you know threats and, and hate speech and whatever else and uh it's such a shame that this I, I really do think that one of the big markers of kind of this uh election cycle and also just sort of this little era in general we're going to be remembered that this strange strange time where someone can just have a political view online and somebody else can put up death threats and, and and put such awful images out there uh with no real consequences it's such a shame oh i know and and really bad like it's really hard to convey like if you haven't been the subject i i feel like there's so many people who've suffered through this it's almost like not even worth discussing but i feel like just to properly convey the level of um evil that exists out there um it like it's important to say some of the things so like one of the things that happened to me was I, at the time i had a blog and people hacked into my blog and put pictures of um black people committing suicide on Whoa. so like yeah so like if people came onto my blog they would see videos of people of black people committing suicide of porn horrible things and so and that wasn't like that's just the tip of the iceberg i cannot adequately sort of convey the level of evil that's been targeted towards us but um yeah so it's been very uh disillusioning and sad and um it's it's just been emotionally very difficult especially because we have a child that's an immigrant um and uh we just we never want her to actually encounter these people in real life. So um, anyway, it's just been sad. Yeah. So one of the things we we talk about a lot, and like you, you've like you have you've experienced this problem to like a greater level than than we ever have. We also we actually also talked to Brianna Wu, uh, who had the sort of the same experience on the other political side of the spectrum 
venue, but the same experience of like massive online harassment. And we've talked to people who've like managed online communities as well. And um, we talk a lot about like the discourse online and like how much or little that can be engineered and is being engineered. And like, you know, you do things in public and in places where uh, there's going to be discussion, but like you often don't manage the channels you're publishing through. Sometimes right. you do, right? Right. But like, is there anything in your experience? Are there people who've like done a good or bad job at like fostering good places for <laughs> for you know a conservative person to be able to oppose Donald Trump without fear of death threats? Ah. Or, like, is there anything that you, like, as far as you can tell, like, is there any, like, variable to, like, engineering a safer and, like, more useful internet for, like, discourse? I honestly, I honestly don't know. Like, I, I have so long ago stopped reading anything that's written beneath my pieces. So, like, I recently wrote something for the Washington Post and... I uh, uh, put that on my uh, social media, and some of my friends texted me, and they were like, oh, my gosh, the comments under your Washington Post piece are so brutal. Are you okay? Of course I was okay, because I don't read that anymore. Um, I don't, because you know, it's like three, two, one, go. Okay, now I'm going to be called this. Now I'm going to be called mm-hmm. that. You know, it's like it's so, literally, I don't think there's anything they could say to me that would be more humiliating than the things that they've already said. So I don't even know anything about the commenting system or like the dialogue that's taking place around my pieces. I just, I don't, I can't care. Yeah, you know, and it's it's so hard from like a psychological perspective or whatever. I don't know. I'm like one of these like analytical philosophy major douchebags who wants to find a reason for everything right right. Like, <laughs> right especially especially things that make me like really uncomfortable you right, know right and so like i'm sitting here i'm trying to like figure this out i'm sure you've spent plenty of time trying to figure out the reason for all of this and you know sometimes there's just not a reason sometimes things are just evil you know right well if you're if you're a presbyterian you have a very solid answer because you firmly <laughs> believe in the depravity of man hey total depravity sure <laughs> Yeah, and this, that's a total layup. Yeah, well, it's it's the one theological premise of Calvinism that you can prove by looking at any comment board. <laughs> Perseverance <laughs> of the saints is a little bit harder to demonstrate. Oh, <laughs> this is a crossover from my uh, my roots. John and I went to Covenant College. Both so of you. We're deep in the depravity of man world. I know. Well, I, I always I always joke that uh, Daniel is. Uh, can't help himself from being surrounded by Christians. This is his lot in life now. <laughs> yeah. I keep putting myself in these situations. Yes, yes. Well, you just I was it. once told that the hound of heaven would haunt me. And oh. that has so far been the case. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm glad to be a part of that haunting process. I like it. That's right. <laughs> I don't know if it was hunt or haunt. I think it was Maybe it was hunt. hunt. Haunt is a little bit more, uh, that's, that's a little darker. I, I do believe that people can be haunted by God. Like you feel like something's not quite right. And I felt God haunted for a while. I think it's, and I think the South in many ways is God haunted. I think it's an interesting concept. They call it the Holy Ghost for a reason. <laughs> Whoa, that's some heavy stuff. I hadn't thought of it that way. Oh, it's good. On the day after Halloween and everything. I know. I bringing it. Very spectral it. of you. <laughs> 
you're working on this novel. Talk about like working on a novel as opposed to like working on all of this. <laughs> yeah, I want to hear about this novel. Well, I believe that um, culture is not as into politics as we are. Um, in fact, uh, I'm friends with Mike Flaherty, who's a movie producer. He did like the Chronicles of Narnia and Journey to the Center of the Earth. And I, we worked with him mm-hmm. on The Giver and just wonderful, talented uh, producer. Uh, one time I was sitting next to him at dinner and the first time I met him and I said, Mike, give me some advice on storytelling. And um, he said, here's the only piece of advice that I can give you. He said, uh, all stories begin with brokenness. And I thought, okay, well, that's very interesting. And then um, over the course of our relationship, he said, um, politics is downstream from normal culture. And both of those things really resonated with me. Um, I just think hmm. that people, you know, you, the three of us pay attention to Twitter. Most people aren't even on it. Um, and so I think it's important to just sort of take a step away from politics, at least for me, and to think about how to tell stories that are good and interesting and entertaining. Um, and so that's what I'm trying to do. I, I have written a novel. I'm in the final st- stages of editing. Um, and I'm going to try to, you know, just tell stories. Um, they're not, it, my story is sort of dark. The one that the, my novel that I'm writing is sort of dark. Um, but that's just where I am in my life. And um, and I think that if you say something that's true, sometimes what you're saying is is dark because the reality is uh, complicated and and sometimes full of evil, as we've been talking about. And so um, fictionalizing that a bit is it, sort of like a fun way to sort of talk about our real world, um, but in a way that's entertaining and interesting. And that's what I'm trying to do. I love that. Hmm. Yeah. I, th- I think that I, I actually really like that phrase. The, the, um, would you say that politics is downstream of normal culture? Is that right? Right. Right. It's, it's, it's interesting the extent to which, uh, Netflix shows and, uh, really good content on you know the internet or wherever has become sort of the common syntax that we all share you know there's a lot of there's obviously like a lot of divisiveness out there at the end of the day like it kind of feels like everyone watches stranger things right it's kind of become the new common text for for people in 2017 which is really interesting and you start to really think about the power of that of what's being created and who's creating it um i really actually think that that's a sort of unifying uh, a unifying thing across all, all divisions right now is basically like Netflix and Amazon. Right. But we watch different shows. Um, you know, like, for example, I don't watch Game of Thrones. I've watched a few episodes, but my husband watches Game of Thrones. But there's probably very, uh, you know, that probably people who watch that show are mostly, um, you know, more urban areas. Um, I loved Breaking Bad. I loved HBO's Girls. I don't know if you saw that. Um, but, uh, yeah, did you, did you see the, um, the girls by any chance? Yeah, I, I was a huge fan. Yeah, I was a huge fan of girls. I think it's like maybe the most like kind of culturally insightful thing that's been made about millennials. Amazing. I loved it so much and it was, but I don't know any person in my normal life who's seen it, you know, like here in <laughs> Columbia, Tennessee. So like I would watch that an episode and be shocked or dismayed or offended or invigorated by it and I wouldn't have anyone to talk to about it because that's not a a show that's popular here um but 
I love that show so much because I, I agree that it is insightful and also felt like it was true. Um, and, yeah. Uh, yeah, so I, I don't know. I just feel like people who have the guts to sort of say things that are true and to depict reality as it is without trying to gloss over it, um, I just, you know, really appreciate. I, I find myself, uh, you know, looking at Judd Apatow's Twitter feed more than, say, Mike Pence these days just because I feel like, I mean, I don't agree. I'm very conservative. Um, I don't agree with a lot of um, Apatow's, like, uh, political stances, but I, I feel like somehow there's, like, this unity and people who are willing to look at reality and, you know, just be honest about it and the flaws. And I feel like that's one of the advantages of that HBO show is that it was, a, it was able to sort of depict the complications of the hipster Brooklyn life in a way that was honest you yeah. know, that rarely you see in, in pop culture. Yeah, I totally yeah. agree. I, 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 I think people really are drawn to the truth. And regardless of who's speaking it or regardless of what kind of baggage they come with, I think I think people, uh, I don't know, I think thoughtful people kind of uh, seek that out and, and see it. And Apatow is a really interesting example. That kind of like, that sort of like, depressing realism that's in all of his all the movies he produces i don't really know if there's another phrase for it. depressing realism is kind of uh kind of where i think it is but it's very interesting he just talks about the normal kind of the normal grinding uh life of young people in america right now and it's not particularly sexy and it really rings true for a whole lot of people Yes, well, I don't know. I heard this uh, Lena Dunham interview on NPR where she was talking about the graphic sex scenes in the show. And I thought it was really interesting because she said she wanted to depict what it's like to have sex with men who grew up on porn. But if you watch the entire series, uh, I think it had a very conservative message. Um, You know, it ended up with this really, I don't want to ruin it for people, but this really uh, interesting uh, celebration of motherhood which I, I think if you're telling the truth I, I still believe that reality has a vote and reality is actually conservative um, not with like I don't identify President Trump as conservative so I'm still the same person that I've always been um, even though I've lost my political affiliation but like if you're if you're writing a novel and you're telling the truth about the world um, the conservative principles will rise um, and that, I think, was very evident in the um, HBO's Girls because the whole premise ended up with motherhood, um, which I thought was just super interesting. Interesting. So I, I have this really close friend named Noah, and uh, Noah is uh, like a psych student um, and has been for a long time and sort of chills in like academic psychology circles. And he was working with this idea, and I can't, remember exactly like where it originates but i know it's like in this particularly particular branch of psychology called cross-cultural psych um and he was playing around with this idea and writing about it for a while and doing a lot of research on it uh on the idea of uh culture as a performance right and that culture culture isn't something like innate that we have right and it's not something like that surrounds us that we're born into, but that it's, it's something that we perform, Mm. right. And that we perform a culture. Um, and I can't like defend this idea or like, uh, fight for it. And I'm sure that I misunderstand it. And he's going to tell me that I've overly romanticized some, like some theory. Uh, but I've always, the idea has always stuck in my head that like 
we perform culture. We don't like we don't just have culture. Right. Like if you say that culture is or that politics is downstream from regular culture, then that means that there's something upstream from like the politics that we're seeing now. I wonder like what the performance is, you know, and like where that performance is. And like, you know, for me, it's easy because I'm like, you know, some like city guy, you know, I don't think that reality is conservative. I think that reality is Marxist. And like, we could argue about that all day if we want to, but we don't want to. Right. (laughs) But like, um, but like for me, like, it's easy to say like, oh, the performance characteristics that lead to this are like, you know, dudes with Oakleys on the backs of their necks, driving big trucks, you know, like with their truck nuts hanging out the window, yelling, <laughs> you know, yelling obscenities at people and throwing pennies at their windows. And, you know, like, yeah. it's easy for me to see like, oh, like, yeah, that type of like sort of toxic, masculine, like uh, aggressive individualism is responsible for like the culture that I'm seeing online. But like, that's just an interpretation from a perspective and from a perspective of a, a person who's performing his own culture, right? Right. But I, I'm not sure, Daniel. I think one of the problems is that we so stigmatize each other. You know, like I, I, I sympathize with your, you know, redneck pickup truck sort of stereotype. Um, but we actually have big differences in our outlooks on life. Like I... I knew when I was saying that uh, reality is conservative that it was I was rankling you. I was waiting for it, but also you know talking about you know buying a firearm and learning how to use it. Like there's a lot that actually separates us, um, and it's hard to overcome that gap. Like it used to be that you would disagree with your neighbor. You could stand outside at your mailbox and have a disagreement about politics. But now you almost never disagree with your neighbor because we're so geographically segregated. Where it really gets complicated is when you can get people who actually disagree and put them in a room. And that almost never happens. Um, You know, like you and I were standing in New York talking about politics uh, several years ago, Daniel. Um, but and we disagreed, but that almost those types of conversations almost never happen, and it happens in places I think like um, the South, like in Tennessee, uh, you know, like just your average church might have, um, you know, a, sort of a compilation of different opinions, um, but the people who are most arrogant about their diversity are people who are the most isolated, Uh, you know, people who live in Manhattan live on an island of liberals, and they almost never encounter people like me, Um, and they don't want to. So I I, I get that. It's easy to stigmatize me when you don't know me.